0: Hello, Build listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Build Podcast. My name is Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. If you listened to the first intro episode, you know why we're here, to figure out the new customer journey and what it means for product-led growth and SaaS more broadly. Today, we hear from Dave Grow, president and COO at Lucidchart. You're probably familiar with Lucidchart because it's certainly a household name in productivity software, enabling over 20 million users to think, work, and communicate visually. Dave joined Lucidchart over nine years ago and has been instrumental in helping lead the company to over $100 million in ARR and a $1 billion valuation. On this episode of Build, we discuss the concept of growth and a growth team, what role each department plays in the product-led engine, and the shifting buyer persona found in a self-serve model. All that and more on this episode of Build. Let's dive in.
1: Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us again on the Build podcast. It's great to have you back.
2: Thanks, Blake. Great to be back.
1: Well, I I know that we've talked with you many times about all things product-led growth and self-serve, and you guys over at Lucid obviously are leading the charge there and, and doing some really awesome stuff. So excited to have this conversation, and I know our listeners are uh, excited to hear it as well. So jumping straight in, this is something I've been asking everybody just to establish a baseline, which is what does product-led growth mean to you and how do you understand that new movement?
2: Yeah, to me, I think product-led growth describes a philosophy or a model where you design and develop a product experience such that the product itself takes on more of the traditional responsibility of marketing, sales, customer success, and so on. And what I mean by that is with, with marketing, for example, you know, the product may help with user acquisition because of the collaboration, invitations, or other viral loops. You know, with sales, users can quickly understand and appreciate the value proposition by actually experiencing and, and loving the product firsthand. Customer success retention and expansion happens more organically as users experience deeper and deeper product value
1: for us we, we think of self service being really important because obviously if if you're building that way individuals need a really easy way to sort of find the products or using the product get activated on the product all of that kind of thing and they don't want to have to deal with going through a traditional you know 30 day long sales cycle or whatever it is to get the contract finalized so self service really is often you know a key component of this product led movement and so, you know, I, I'm hearing whether folks call it product-led growth or product-led, or they just refer to it as self-service. It seems that self-service is a big topic right now. Lots of big companies, you know, adding self-service if they've never had it. Lots of, you know, young startups doing incredibly well and in growing the rocket off of the back of self-service. And so it seems to be kind of, you know, that enterprise software is having its self-service moment. And I'm curious to know, you know, your perspective on why you think that's the hot topic right now.
2: Yeah, well, I think for one, as you mentioned, we obviously see all these great companies, right? We see and we see Slack, we see Zoom, and we want to emulate them, right? But, but at a more fundamental level, I, I think, you know, one, it resonates with us as end users ourselves, right? I mean, we, we would rather prefer, you know, being able to self-serve and get started with, you know, the products just like we do in our personal lives. You know, years ago, this was labeled consumerization of IT. That's no longer a hip term, you know, but by proxy, when we put ourselves in our user's shoes, you know, self-service compelling from that perspective. I also think we're, we're familiar with how software purchasing works at companies, right? If purchases are below a certain dollar threshold, my manager or I can often just buy it. Whereas at some threshold, it's gonna require all sorts of various approvals, you know, procurement, legal, finance, and so on. And so the idea of reducing friction, making it easy for users to buy, I think is pretty interesting as well. And then, you know, finally, I think efficiency often plays into the equation as well. Right? the more human interaction along the customer journey, the more expensive that customer acquisition gets. And so I think as, as enterprise companies and as companies generally are balancing growth and profitability, you know that efficiency equation, I think, is starting to play an important role as well. As much as I love the self-serve model, I think it's also important to recognize, at least in my perspective, it's not necessarily the right model for every product at, at every stage. And You know, because I think self-serve or more broadly, your go-to-market motion, it's not just a tactic, right? It's a a fundamental part of your strategy. And so it has to tie in tightly to your product positioning, your target market, your buyer persona, and so on. And by the way, you know, changing a company's go-to-market motion isn't impossible, but it's really hard, right? If you come from a sort of traditional enterprise sales background, introducing a self-serve model, you know, has some real challenges. You know, if the company grew up with a pure self-serve motion as we did at Lucidchart, layering on enterprise sales requires a big learning curve. So in short, I think it can be a very compelling model, but it has to fit and be accepted as a fundamental part of you know, the company and product strategy. I think that's
1: a great point. And I do see that oftentimes there's a, a misconception as to how easy it is to sort of become self-service or become product-led if you didn't start that way. And the, the misconception goes like, well, I'll just put a self-service sign up form the front end of my product and uh, offer a free tier and then boom, I'm, I'm now I'm product led, right? Right. And there's a lot more complexity to it than just merely the external appearance of, you know, what product led growth companies have, you have to be wired for it. And there's so many things that it changes. And that leads me to one question, which is, how does it specifically change the buyer persona? If you are going to go self-service, what does that mean in terms of who you should be building for, who you should be getting this product in front of, is it the same? as old school software or is it different now?
2: Well, I think this has been an evolution that's happening you know, generally in the buying market. You know, while there are, of course, exceptions, I think most executives aren't necessarily focused on the next great software or piece of their technology stack, right? As an executive, I'm largely gonna be focused on, one, do I have the right strategy to win? And two, do I have the right people to be successful? After I have that worked out, then I'm gonna turn my focus to the execution and the operational side, but even then, in my experience, most executives rely on the next level of leadership you know, who are largely the functional experts in their organizations to really be the ones to recommend changes in technology or process. I see this all the time. If I look at just the emails I got yesterday, I got cold emails from software vendors you know, focused on payroll software, cloud optimization software, outsourcing solutions, and so on. And you know, even though I've got the title of Chief Operating Officer. I'm not the right person to start with. It may get to my desk eventually, but my desk isn't, I think, where that should start. I think even in today's buying environment for B2B software, that next layer of directors and managers already have a lot of influence and probably more influence than we may give them credit for. But back to your question, what I think self-serve does now is just deepen that influence and purchasing power. You know, Because now if I'm that manager or director or even an individual contributor, I can potentially self-serve into a product, start using it, share it with my peers, potentially demonstrate real results for the business, all without the approval of the executive because of that self-serve buying experience and often the corollary price point. And and maybe one last point on that, that sort of self-serve experience of what I just described, I mean, it it de-risks the purchase pretty significantly because in the traditional buying process, that manager or director is gonna have to make the case to their VP or C-level about what they hope to accomplish with this new software implementation. And they're putting their name and credibility on the line to some extent. And for a lot of that, they're having to base it off of slide presentations or marketing collateral that they've gotten from the vendor sales rep. But now with a self-serve model, you know the manager or director can actually test and learn the product themselves forever having to make that case for the bigger budget purchase. So I think it changes the dynamics really by empowering and deepening the influence of, of a lot of other people in the organization beyond the executive or C-suite. Got it, so if I think about that in in relation to
1: specific example, So if I'm a SaaS business and I've built for financial technology or accounting software that typically gets sold into the finance department and I think about the CFO as being the head of that department or perhaps the VP of finance being the head of that department and he or she has the budget. And so historically I would have been like all oriented towards the CFO or the VP of finance. But in a self-serve world, what you're saying is focusing on that top tier and the leader of the organization they just have too many priorities and might not be looking to self-serve products because they're focused on strategy and things like that that you mentioned and so if you're looking to penetrate into the finance department then think about the next layer down the director level or perhaps even the individual contributor who's that bookkeeper who hates his or her job who's that you know staff accountant and what are their sort of pain points and think about creating a self-service product that addresses them and that grows up through the organization through them, rather than just putting that self-service sign-up form on the front of a
2: CFO-oriented product. Yeah, absolutely. I think th- the reality of the situation is when buying software, or really anything, the farther you are away from the pain, the less you care. And so from a self-serve model, I think it gives us an opportunity to go directly to those users where the pain is being felt and where the value proposition will be held much more tightly. And so yes, that may be the FP; manager, it may be the controller maybe the staff accountant and maybe the payroll manager, right? Wherever that pain is truly felt and, you know, the understanding of what the problem is and what the software can really accomplish. And then they'll go help layer up to their executive or CFO in this case, to make that case much more effectively than they could otherwise.
1: Now, how does this shift in the buyer persona and this shift towards self-service, how does that affect how SaaS businesses should be thinking about marketing?
2: Yeah, I think it can affect marketing in a couple of ways. I mean, first, it can be exciting and clarifying because as a marketer, you get a much more rapid response about your efforts and investments. Instead of waiting weeks or months to understand how leads from certain channels progress through the sales pipeline, now you can know in days or even hours because you can see which visitors are starting to use the product, trialing the self-serve. And so with self-serve, Product and trial engagement may now trump pipeline progression. That kind of near real-time feedback can really help you hone in on your marketing spend and efforts. And it also opens up all sorts of possibilities around rapid experimentation. You know, so I think that's a big one. And I think the second one comes to the messaging side of things. Because with a self-serve model, and particularly a freemium model, you really only have seconds to impress your message upon a user. Because if the option is there to either get into the product or read more copy on a webpage, almost all of us are going to jump straight into the product. And so you've got a few seconds. And so you've really got to nail that messaging, you know, to the end user. But like we were talking about in the last example, I don't think you can forget that more senior buyer because part of this self-serve journey in most cases is to help layer up over time to a broader enterprise or company wide sale. And so you've got to be balancing that messaging between capturing the value for the end user, but also what is the value in the end for the organization? On the marketing side, I also noticed that
1: in self-service businesses, in product-led businesses, marketing isn't the only group that's generating top of funnel. There's also things like collaboration, things like viral loops, and other things that live in the product that could also generate new users or you know, lead flow for, for you as well. Oftentimes, I'll hear that people refer to that as, as a growth team, but I also know that growth has a you know, bit of a nebulous definition and means something different. To everyone so what are your thoughts on having this growth team and the role of non-marketers also generating top of funnel and how does all that
2: play out yeah it's a great question Uh, i mean at lucid when i think about again we've got 20 million users and where have those users come from over time there's there's kind of traditional marketing activities around seo and demand gen and that's a huge funnel for us second you know comes to integrations developing great kind of workflows with other leading applications. And that is kind of much more product and engineering-led, you know, than marketing. And then there's the third piece, as we talked about with the viral loops, right? So those three have been the fundamental sort of pillars of our growth uh, over time and, and, you know, somewhat spread across different teams and focuses. When you think about a growth team and, and what that means, I agree, it's, it's a nebulous definition. And in some ways, I, I don't actually love the name. But for me, it describes this cross-functional team. Product manager, analysts, engineers, potentially marketers, ultimately focused on successful acquisition, activation in the product, and the eventual monetization of the users. So the acquisition, activation, and monetization. And so I think that that team is often maniacal around a user's first interactions with the website, entering the product, being onboarded, achieving their first success with the product, and so on and also likely responsible for considering the monetization strategy. And so I think they play an important role because they bring a level of focus to that user funnel at the beginning of their experience beyond what we might have traditionally done from a pure marketing perspective or a pure product perspective. So based on what you said there, which is that growth owns
1: acquisition, activation and monetization, if we focus on the acquisition side of the house and think about that with top of funnel, How does growth end up collaborating or partnering with marketing in terms of that acquisition and top of funnel thing? Are they working closely together
2: on those cross-functional teams or is it different? Yeah, I think they should be deep with marketing because a, a user's journey doesn't start when they register for the product. It's earlier when they first land on the website and even extends earlier than that into whatever the acquisition channels are. And so I don't necessarily think that the growth team may be the experts in that acquisition. They may not be the experts in SEO and so on, but while our growth team at Lucidchart used to focus on the experience from the pricing page on the website into the product, that team now also focuses on optimizing the website experience as well. And so that type of coordination can lead to a more holistic experience. Let's say for Lucidchart, a user searches for org chart software because they need to visualize their company or department. We can test and optimize each step of that process. The landing page with the copy and CTAs, The registration or pricing page can highlight features related to org charts. We can serve up an org chart template in the product rather than a generic diagram when they enter. We can do a customized product walkthrough. We can have the nurture emails, highlight specific articles or tutorials about org charts and so on. Being part and really tied at the hip, I think, with marketing, understanding, again, where are their strengths oftentimes in bringing in those users initially, but then optimizing the funnel all the way through, starting from the very first touch perhaps on the website is where that, I think, collaboration comes in. And
1: this collaboration also brings up another term that has a nebulous definition, depending on who you talk to, which is growth marketing. So do you guys think about growth marketing?
2: Do you have an opinion on that? What is growth marketing in the first place? You know, we've never used that term very much because, as you said, I'm not really sure exactly what it entails. But I think we do have a pretty maniacal focus around experimentation. And I think largely when people talk about growth marketing, they're talking about, okay, let's experiment very quickly. Let's learn from that. And then let's take those learnings and, and continue to experiment. And so again, starting from that first point when, well, actually all the way up into the acquisition funnel, right? I mean, if we're doing PPC or social ads, I mean, we're, we're gonna you know run credible number of A, B tests to understand what's most effective, what's resonating with the user and so on. And then continuing that experimentation when they get to the website, into the product and so on. This concept around growth, for me is is much broader than a team. And so, or the right org structure, it's it's really about developing the right culture internally, this culture of customer understanding, this culture of analytics and data supported decision-making, culture of experimentation and learning from those successes and failures, culture of the company winning as users and companies win. So I think we shouldn't get too caught up in sort of a certain team owning growth, right? It's really about how do we take this culture and perhaps start it somewhere, but really permeate it through the entire organization
1: yeah i've been hearing more of that sentiment which is that growth marketing while for some it has a a really nice ring to it you know it sounds kind of like a a new way to do marketing in reality it's it's much more so about the actual discipline and the behavior than the name or where does it sit and i like that idea of bringing experimentation and rapid iteration into marketing so it really is bringing a lot of kind of agile concepts that you know might have Started in engineering and in product as we think about moving from waterfall to agile and you know, daily releases or sort of, you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment. How do we bring that idea into other orgs or other parts of the org, like marketing, and do the A B testing, do the rapid sort of experimentation and use data much like engineers and and product managers would? in order to inform decisions, more so than traditional marketing class 101 sort of materials like, you know, marketing mix or something like that.
2: I love that. I mean, you know, years ago as a company and as a leadership team, and, you know, we sat down and we articulated our core values. And one of those four core values was innovation in every area. You know, because I think sometimes at tech or software companies, we think it is only in the product where innovation is happening. Right. But, but at that time we stepped back and we said, well, to really sort of accomplish our goals and our mission and our vision, we've got to have everyone innovating. We've got to have marketing innovating. We've got to have sales innovating. We've got to have product and so on. And that's been true because as you said in this whole conversation, I was around a lot. How do we innovate the way we interact with users, the customer journey and so on? And so that innovation in every area, that learning, that rapid testing, that experimentation, I think is such a critical part, you know, to making all of this work.
1: And as this journey continues, so we've talked about Top of Funnel, we talked about the role of growth and acquisition, activation and monetization. At some point, I know for many companies, they look to then layer in or feel the need to layer in humans into that process at some point. And I get a lot of questions about that. Who are these people? When do they get involved? What do they do? How is it similar or different to old sort of sales led models that I'm familiar with from a prior era of enterprise software? And so, you know, maybe starting with who are the folks that, that get involved in the beginning parts of a self-service journey? Is this support? Is this success? Is it sales? Is it something else?
2: Again, it comes back to what do we mean by the self-serve journey? Because I think most companies and, and products that have a self-serve experience also have that path to ladder up to enterprise sales. It's true of Atlassian. It's true of Slack. It's true of Zoom and so on. And so it's really not just a self-serve journey. It's a journey that starts with self-serve, but then grows into more then the question of where do humans come in I think is an important one because I think it does span the ones we're talking about. Support, sales, customer success all play a pretty key role. But overall, when you take a step back and say, well, why? Why are humans generally involved? I think it's two purposes. It's to facilitate and accelerate that product-led growth. Facilitate and accelerate. And, And we can talk about what that means in the context specifically of support, sales and customer success. But I think that's why they get involved. So let's unpack that a bit. What do you mean by facilitate? Let's go kind of roll by role for a second. One, I think if you start with support, right, this is a more straightforward one, I think, in many regards, just how users expect a delightful experience with using the product, they expect the same kind of bar for product support. What's also relevant, though, is because these users self served into a product experience, they're often very comfortable and, and even prefer self-serving into a product support experience. And so I think a key part of self-serve and particularly a freemium model is, you know, how do you scale support beyond sort of the one-to-one human interaction? At Lucidchart, you know, we have a relatively small support team. We've got 10 to 15 people supporting millions of active users every month, and that really comes back to first, of course, designing the great product experience. Can't say enough about that. But two, we've scaled a great help center. You often see this: people, you know, scaling communities where users can often support each other. Eventually, though, there's often times where People want to talk to someone and they want to talk to a representative from the company who understands this really well and better than anyone else. And and that's where that sort of reactive support comes in. And so in in many regards, I don't know that the model is that different for human interaction from self-service to enterprise. Although I think there's an opportunity to scale it from a human perspective in a different way. That's how I would think about support. Sales, I think, does play somewhat a different role and a few key roles. And so, you know, maybe to talk through that for a minute. First, there's some level of spend where a lot of customers still wanna talk to someone. Even if they love the product, even if they're gonna self-serve or can self-serve, they're gonna spend thousands of dollars with the company. They wanna know that there's a good human being on the other side that they can get support when they need it. And so, even though with Lucidchart, customers can self-serve into a team account on the website with a credit card, without ever talking to anyone, we still receive a lot of phone calls informed fills by people who just want to talk to a real person. And of course, our sales team is going to be a facilitator to answer some of those questions that enable them to, of course, self-serve and and grow beyond that. The next one, though, is a little bit unique. I think what the sales team can do to self-serve, to enterprise model, can often elevate the perspective beyond a single user or a single team to a much broader opportunity within a company. And what I mean by that is if a team is collaborating with Chart to visualize various parts of the product development process and finding success, well, why not introduce that to the other product development teams of their company? And, and with a product-led model, that could well happen eventually organically over some time period. But what a sales professional, I think, can do is initiate that conversation, elevate that perspective, and help them adopt you know, the solution faster than they might otherwise. In the early days, there was this whole conversation around, well, is, is sales cannibalizing some of the self-serve by interacting you know, with some of our self-serve users and so on? But what we realized was, if you looked at it, of course, it was somewhat anecdotal because it's hard to measure. We would see a phone call come in for someone who wanted to buy a team for five users. But by the time they had you know, an enlightening conversation with the sales rep who did some great discovery, that would become a team of 15 or 25 users. Because they were able to elevate the perspective of that buyer to a more significant organizational lens, and then let me hit the the last point with sales, and then I'll pause. The sales team can often help navigate, you know, the barriers that often exist within enterprises. Even when there's natural pull for a product into a company, a company's still going to have their security process. They're still going to often want a contract or MSA, and so on and so forth. And so, a great sales professional can quickly and effectively identify and knock down those barriers to growth. And unpacking a few of those things, I would say the big question
1: that occurs to me because I hear it from a lot of folks is, okay, if I'm in a similar position to, to Lucid and if I have you know millions of users, but within those millions of users, there are lots of high potential, high value accounts. And I'm seeing all the domains coming through. I got five users that signed up from Amazon. What if I got that whole company on my product? So how do you decide which leads actually get this kind of sales attention or the human attention and which ones don't. And then also layering on that, how do you decide when to to reach out to those people? In the Amazon example, is it when user number one from Amazon shows up, you start having a sales conversation? Is it user number 10? Is it user number 100? How do you know when and, and which accounts to pay attention to?
2: Yeah, I think it's often around momentum and it's often not in the context of a single user. Because again, when sales is going to engage, hopefully what they're going to do is broaden the potential impact from that user or that team into into an enterprise-wide deal. And maybe that first user is going to be the one who helps you do that. But typically, it's going to require some concentration of users and some momentum. And so those are some of the metrics we watch is what kind of penetration do we have at the company? And by the way, that's relative to the size of the company. And so if you're trying to start with Amazon, where they have you know, 100,000 employees, having 50 users there is different than having 50 users at a mid market company with 2,000 employees. The concentration matters as well as that momentum or that acceleration. If you've registered 50 users or 50 self serve users over three years, again, that's very different than three months. Because hopefully, what that's going to give you the signal of is that internally that pull is real. You're starting to see the viral loops happen. And that's when folks are generally going to be more amenable to pointing you in the right direction or a conversation about you know, something at an organization level. So again, I think it comes down to a lot to sort of concentration of users as as well as momentum. And I think a lot of times companies who have self-serve funnels forget a couple of those. And, and what I mean by that is it's tempting to want to start with Amazon and say, man, if I pulled down Amazon, this is going to be a multi-million dollar deal. But I think to really sort of get the at bats you need, if you have a broad self-serve funnel, starting some of those conversations with SMB folks and with kind of mid-market companies helps you learn the ropes and what's required rather than taking you all the way to the enterprise where there's the most stringent requirements and you may just get eaten up in the procurement, legal and security process for years. So in this journey, what is the role of, of customer success? I find the role of customer success is often about continuing user education and account optimization. Let me, let me touch on what I mean by that. So with a self-serve model, users will often jump in, hone in on their specific use case, typically without requiring any human interaction to onboard them. That's part of the self-serve model. And while that's awesome, most of us have pretty robust products. And users may initially only need or even find the first layer. And so over time, I think there's a role for customer success as well as product to help introduce those users to more sophistication that often exists within the product. And again, that can happen in a scaled way via webinars and things of that nature. If they're high value enough users or accounts, it can happen on a more one-to-one basis. And so figuring out how that continuing user education should happen is important because you didn't go through a lengthy sales cycle then introduce them to all the bells and whistles and all the things that may help them be most successful. And so now you've got to do that over time rather than you know, maybe heavily weighted at the beginning. That continuing user education is a core piece. I think account optimization is another interesting piece. And so like sales, there's this role to help facilitate customer to be more successful, help facilitate that growth. I'll give you an example with Lucidchart. You know, we integrate deeply with a lot of applications. Slack, Teams, G Suite, Confluence, Jira, and so on. And those integrations can serve a couple of purposes. One, they definitely improve the user experience, the workflow, the collaboration, and so on. At the same time, they raise the discoverability of Lucidchart to brand new users within the company because now I'm seeing Lucidchart on my Okta login page. I'm seeing it in Slack. I'm seeing it in various places. And even though I haven't maybe been formally introduced to it, I stumble upon Lucidchart. I start using it. I start loving the product because of that sort of product-led slick growth. And so that's a role of customer success is to figuring out in this new world, okay, what are those ways that like sales, we can remove some of the barriers to growth and find those opportunities, whether they're integrations or other things to help facilitate that further adoption and expansion.
1: And I wanted to talk about order of operations
2: of success versus
1: sales. So you gave an example of if you get 50 seats inside a mid-market account and say they have converted, so they're paying users as well. And then you see an opportunity to expand their usage, identify new use cases and things they can be doing with the product. Do you also see that there's an ability to drive deeper penetration into the org? Does success reach out and start suggesting some of those next step ideas and growing the account? Or does sales reach out and start a sales conversation? Which one comes first? And how do you think about order of operations?
2: One of the most challenging questions, because I I think with this sort of self-serve model to enterprise, the lines between sales and customer success are so blurred. And that's why part of the reason, at least, why you see certain companies Call sales other names, customer advocates or things of that nature, customer champions, you know, whatever it may be, and it and there's this almost a stigma to around having a sales team, which i don 't understand because if you have the right sales team with the right training, they're customer advocates and customer champions, no matter what you call them but it's a, it's a really challenging question, and so for us, how we've tended to segment it is around the size of those accounts and the type of service that they're going to receive and so Oftentimes, if we have 50 individuals or small teams paying, they're more self-serve users, we're going to often have sales reach out first in a very consultative way, help them understand you know, some of the benefits that they could receive as an organization and collaboration-wise if they were able to come together. And are they interested in that conversation? Now, of course, separately, I talked about how customer success is going to do things in a scale fashion, webinars and things of that nature and the role that product plays as well. And so again, this is why I think the lines get blurry, but you know, typically for us to make the lines a little bit more clear, we try to delineate based off of SKU. And so we say if they're on a self-serve SKU, typically that's going to be focus of marketing and a, a focus of sales to see if we can ladder them up over time. And once they do have a company-wide account, and enterprise account, that's when RCS team is best equipped to step in and really help them grow. Okay, so you mentioned momentum and concentration as the things that you're looking for to
1: determine when a salesperson or another human may reach out to that account. So are you putting momentum and concentration into some kind of MQL, SQL, PQL, other sort of lead scoring rubric?
2: Yeah, I think this comes back to thinking about the user and the company or the account because the signals at a user level are gonna be very different. It's gonna be about what they're doing in the product and what success they're seeing, things of that nature. But when the company or account overall is ready to sort of be interactive with is going to depend a lot around that concentration, that momentum. And so they're two of the most important factors in our account scoring. And so we watch it very carefully. I'll say when we first started sales five years ago, we literally took a spreadsheet and we sorted high to low on these two columns. And we've done a lot more sophisticated things. We have great data science, great analytics now, and those have pushed us forward. But the vast majority of the value still comes from thinking very simplistically and holistically. And I could go back to that Excel spreadsheet today, and it probably still many of the best leads would be clear to us now. So I wouldn't overcomplicate how to think about exactly how and when to engage, but keep it simple and keep the focus on the customer and their success. And I think you're going to be in a good place. Great. And my last
1: question or last topic for us to dig into on this conversation
2: is back to
1: organizational design and ownership. And so specifically, I'm thinking about who has revenue ownership or who owns the number, so to speak. Historically, I've thought about that as always being the VP of Sales or the CRO who owns the number, and and that's the the one throat to choke, so to speak. But in a self-service world where you have product growth, the cross-functional teams, you have success getting involved in It seems that lots of people are contributing to the growth number in a direct way. And so how does that change revenue ownership or does everybody have a number now or
2: what do you guys see? First, you know, there's obviously more than one number involved here, even when speaking with a strict revenue focus. And so at minimum, you've got two numbers that I think are worth mentioning. You've got sort of the new and upgrade number, but you've got the turn and downgrade number as well and it gets a little bit fuzzy there as well. So let me share the concrete way that we think about this at Lucid. You know, we have self-serve plans for individuals and small teams, then we have our enterprise offering for larger teams or company-wide deployments. And so our marketing team with our growth team, which is part of it, is largely responsible for the new and upgrade number for those self-serve SKUs. Separately, our chief revenue officer and sales leadership is responsible for the new and upgrade number for the enterprise SKU. And even though I say separately, they're actually incredibly tightly bound our teams work very closely together because of course that self-serve number over time helps drive the enterprise number. We just talked about those self-serve users become the best leads for the enterprise offering. I'm familiar with cases where product leadership is actually responsible for the self-serve number. Personally, it's not a model I love. While I think product leadership should absolutely understand the business dynamics as well as anyone in the company and the impacts of changes that they're making, I think you run the risk of having too many people focused on monetization. To truly be product-led, you need the right balance internally. And so I think product leadership should be so intensely focused on that customer experience and solving the jobs to be done. And if they are, then the growth and marketing teams will be in a phenomenal place to own the actual new and upgrade number. On the flip side, we can't forget about churn and downgrade. It happens. And it can become a meaningful number over time, especially with the self-serve model. It's easy in, but that can also mean it's easy out. And so for enterprise churn or downgrade, that's a little bit more straightforward. That's our customer success team in tandem with our sales team. The harder question, though, is when you get to self-serve, who owns that churn or downgrade number? right? Because no human's interacting with these folks directly. And so is it marketing? Is it product? Is it customer success? We've gone through a lot of iterations in this, and essentially we've landed on a very tight partnership between marketing and product. Marketing has to be part of the equation because they have a lot of influence on the quality of users that may self-serve. Similarly, product is, of course, at the core of the experience. It's either great or it's not for those users. And so while I, I would love there, for there to be sort of one throat to choke, as you mentioned, I think it's become clear to us that one group can't own the self-serve churn and downgrade number just given those dependencies. I like
1: the way that you described it there, which is I could imagine that if you want to hit a certain growth number, next year or whatever the next period is. And if you say, well, we have this new interesting way, this customer journey that involves self-service and sales. And so we have marketing touching part of the the journey, we have growth or product touching part of the journey, and we have sales touching part of the journey. So let's just split it up a third, a third, a third. You guys all get a third of the number that's too quick and dirty and the way that you've described it through this skew overlay is much more first principles oriented which is if we're going to hit that growth number well what products are we going to sell to deliver that growth number and then who is responsible for those products or those packages or those SKUs? and then let's split up the revenue ownership by that orientation
2: rather than just a simple top-down percentage or something like that. It's a really sophisticated way to think about it. Yeah, it's where a lot of the innovation has to happen, honestly, and it sounds a little bit silly because it's around metrics and ownership, but that is how an organization functions. And so we often get this question of, well, who's responsible for new acquisition? Well, how do you define new? Is it a new user, a new free user? Is it a new paying user? Is it a new enterprise account? You know How do you define what is new? And you, you can't even imagine how many hours of conversations we've had on that. This is where some of that innovation in every area has to happen. You have to sort of be able to rethink what this customer journey looks like because it's not as clean as the old days. It's not as clean as marketing drives leads, sales engages with leads, some leads close to deals customer success engages with those accounts. It's a much more fluid journey from that self serve or freemium model all the way up to enterprise. And that fluidity can be tough to manage, but it is so important to try to get it right. However, that is in your organization. We have found what works with us, and that is the SKU overlay. But other organizations may have a different take or innovation on that. And I think that's appropriate as long as you sort of get to that collaboration and not losing sight on the customer journey. Because you start to divvy things up, the risk is you go back to being siloed when in this customer journey, you can't afford to be siloed at all. It has to be fluid. It has to be delightful. It has to be seamless. That's what users expect when you introduce a self-serve model, even when you're now dealing with six and seven-figure contracts.
1: I've heard some people refer to product-led as really the rise of cross-functional And you've referred to a lot of those same themes in this conversation that it's all about cross-functional teams, cross-functional operations, cross-functional ownership and metrics. And that's great. And I think a lot of people get excited about cross-functional because it does allow you to get a lot more sort of uh, knowledge sharing across the board drive innovation, as you mentioned, and, and you guys sort of strive for it at Lucid. It allows you to be agile and theoretically move quicker, but you can't just focus on the good side and the benefits that you get. You also have to understand that there's a ton of complexity and a ton of fluidity, as you mentioned, in all of these things. And so recognizing that, and doing the hard work to design a system from a first principle standpoint that adapts to that fluidity and creates clear definitions, because otherwise it'll just spin out of control and you'll have to almost by default revert back to more of a structured old school organization because that's the only thing that you know, and and it
2: kind of feels like a safety blanket, right? Absolutely. And I think this is why company culture matters so much if you're going to have a product-led model. I've talked about innovation in every area. One of our other four core principles is teamwork over ego. Because particularly at the executive level, but at every level of the organization, you have to have individuals who are low ego, who are not about sort of building kingdoms or fiefdoms, who are okay with that fluidity, who are okay with where credit should flow. And so company culture is so much part of the strategy of being a product-led company.
1: Well, Dave, this has been a fantastic conversation. Unpacking the, the new customer journey, that's exactly what we did today. And, and you really you know, brought a lot of clarity that I think our listeners are going to benefit from. So, so thank you for joining us today on the Build Podcast. It was really great to have you back. Curious if there's anything that you'd like to point the listeners to in the lucid world that we should be mindful
2: of. I think I'd invite people to come think and create and communicate visually with us. A lot of what we talked about here is around the user and customer journey. That's not something that's easily described just in words. So to really get it right, you need to visualize that. And Lucidchart's a fantastic application to do that, would invite all of our listeners to do that, to think about how to innovate your business model and really become a product-led company. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dave. And it was great to have you back. Thanks, Blake. Thanks
0: for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next week here on Build.